0: Alright, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuckaroos? Yeah. What the fuckaroos? That's for Tim Heidecker. They uh, they kind of made fun of my uh, intro. I did, uh, I did his show the other day, that Office Hours Live. And, you know, in the past, the Tim and Eric contingent always made me a little nervous because I didn't know whether or not I was going to enter into a situation where I was being part of the joke as the joke without knowing it. But uh, Tim's grown up. He's a nice guy. <laughs> He's, I had a good time on the show. Anyway, what's going on with you people? What is happening? Where are we at? Today on the show, I talked to Tom Driesen again. Now, Tom, as some of you know, I did a full WTF back in uh, 2019. It was episode 1039. Um, we, uh, We talked about his whole life and career from his comedy team with Tim Reed to being a labor organizer for comics to his friendship with David Letterman. And I wanted to have him back for a very specific reason. Now, Tom is of, I'd say, not the generation before me, but the generation before that. And he spent years opening for Frank Sinatra. And he's just been at the comedy store a lot. And uh, we just start talking in the parking lot. And he tells these stories. The one that really got me, and he'll tell it here, it's just stories about the mob that he's had personal experience with in show business. Who doesn't have a mob fascination on some level? I mean, most Americans... Whether it's through uh, the Sopranos or the Godfathers or, or uh, maybe members of your family, they, they have some kind of mob fascination. But these stories to me were just, you know, when they come from somebody firsthand, it, it's kind of amazing. The, the, the humanization of mafia characters. Now, I have not come in contact with too many, but I have come in contact with a couple and i'm i'm wary to sort of go into it there was a guy who ran a club who was in some way i he wasn't mobbed up really but but he had connections and i remember meeting a guy at that club who was a made guy and just the sort of flat affectation of his eyes the the knowledge the be to be in the presence of someone you know is a killer you're going to project what you're going to project but there is something there. I you, you have to assume that killing a person for whatever reason changes your vibe, but it was cold and it was intense, and I knew I didn't want to be around it. And when you see characterizations of the mob in movies and television, there there's something it, there, there's something detached from that. Um, the only time I've seen it really played correctly was by uh, Rory Cochran in Black Mass. And I talked to him about that. You know, I, I talked to him about that, that movie. And I just felt that that weird kind of callous lack of conscience or justification or whatever. I just I felt it. It reminded me of that guy that I met at that comedy club, his performance in that. And I think that Joe Pesci in Moments uh in Goodfellas uh has it. But it's 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 a deep thing, and I, I don't think it can be faked really. And then there was another time I knew a guy who was uh had done uh a contract job on somebody for the mob. I met that guy at my drug dealer's house back in the day, and he was kind of a kid, but just knowing that this is what they do. But the fascination with Tom's stories is that the mafia was part of show business during the, the sort of dinner club era that there were so many mob owned clubs. And and he touched on it a little bit in the first conversation we had, but these, I think we've got a few specific tales here about, about the mob, you know, the big one being, you know, Joey Gallo, who, that's, that's a, you can't even, I can't even imagine this character. I mean, the way we sort of sense it in movies, I think Pacino did a good job with Donnie Brasco. There was definitely moments of that darkness that you can feel in somebody that you know has killed people for money or for honor or just as business. And I'm talking, you know, obviously, I've probably met people who were in the military, but I find this to be a different thing, a different vibe. Uh, people in the military who have killed people in the line of duty. But that's sort of the reason why Tom's back is to tell these stories, because it's 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 somehow endlessly fascinating. So, folks, if you're in L.A., I'll be at Dynasty typewriter this Saturday, June 24th. And there are other tickets on sale there as well. The July dates are up. I'm going to be there three, I think, three nights in July as well. You can go to wtfpod.com slash tour for tickets. That's all sort of me working shop. Working shop? How about workshopping whatever I'm working on? I'll be at Largo on Sunday, July 1st for a music show with the band Music and Comedy. I think uh the other guests will be Ali Colbert and uh and Willie Simon, who I like. I don't know who's opening for me this Saturday. I gotta find somebody. I gotta get on it. Uh but again, you can go to WTFpod.com slash tour for tickets. In other news, there's there's hope in the world, you know. I, I had this experience yesterday, and in the moment it felt like a, a major thing. A major thing. I I was changing my cat's water and one of my AirPods fell out into the cat water. And you know, that moment where you just know it's over where, you know, you drop your phone in a toilet or It's very specific feeling where you're it's an immediate hopelessness. Like, fuck. And I grab it out and I dry it off and I'm completely just ready to get online and buy a new set of pods. And I put it in my ear and it worked. And the feeling of elation that I got in that moment the feeling of elation that came up, like, oh, my God, this is amazing. What is, What kind of this never happens. This is the best thing that's ever happened. It still works. I can hear. I can hear out of it. Uh, it was just a, an amazing, like, I felt like the luckiest guy in the world. Like, everything's turning around, man. Turns out that AirPod Pros are pretty waterproof. But nonetheless, you can't take that feeling away from me. It happened, man. It happened. Um, Tom Dreesen, uh, he put out a book since the last time he was on called still standing my journey from streets and saloons to the stage and Sinatra. You can get it wherever you get books. I really enjoy talking to Tom. I'm glad he did this. So this is me and reason uh, talking about, I think primarily, uh, mob stories, show business stuff. I'm I'm listening to this podcast about uh, about Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin, and Frank's in there a lot. Uh, it's like an eight part uh, series on them. It's a very great uh, podcast called uh, uh, "You Must Remember This" about Hollywood, mm-hmm. and it's really about the trajectories of Dean and Sammy, you know, revolving around you know early on Jerry Lewis and then Frank and then you know their relationship and. Uh, and the rap Pack and, and, and... But you worked with uh, you
1: worked with Sammy? I toured with Sammy for three years, yeah. For three years? He claimed he discovered me. He would say for years I discovered Tom Dreesen. You know. Really? Yeah. Now, what years was this you worked with Sam? 1977, 78, 79. And, uh, and now, when, when did I, he pass? He passed away. For, he was the first of the pack to pass away. Yeah. Know? Dean was second, of course, and Frank yeah. being third. But he passed away, gosh, about... Uh, what was it? Jeez, 20 years ago. He... Uh, but when you were touring with him, you do a lot of dates or were you just oh, in Vegas? Dates. No, we do. I, I toured all over the country with him. uh uh-huh. You know, theaters in around, you know, all around the country. uh uh-huh. um, Chicago, the Mill Theater, the Centrum Theater. Yeah. We, you know, uh, you know... um Detroit, everywhere. And then, of course, Las Vegas, Caesars Palace all the time. Yeah. He was a joy to tour with. Yeah. First of all, to sit in the wings and watch this guy, this guy who, who uh, he could do it all. Yeah. He could could do comedy as good as any comedian I met. He could do impressions, to me, better than any impressionist out there. Well, yeah. He could sing. He never, Frank Sinatra said he never heard Sammy hit a clinker. He could play drums. He could play the trumpet. He could play the piano. Yeah. I mean, there was nothing he couldn't do on the stage. Yeah, it was a great, huh? Watching. Oh him. God, you you know? Do you know why I wanted to tour with him? When I f- did my first appearance on the Tonight Show, yeah. a whole new world opened up for me. Yeah. But I wanted to do Sammy and Company. Sammy had a TV show, and my agent at William Morris named Deborah Miller, I kept bugging her. She said, "Tommy, you're doing all these other shows. Why do you want to do that show?" I said, "Because I saw him do something, Mark. It was the greatest thing that I've ever yeah. seen to this day in my 50 years in shows. Yeah. Tim Reed and I were a comedy team, as you right. know, a black-white comedy yeah. team." America's first and only black and white comedy. Yeah. Team. We were doing a show in Chicago called the Black Expo, the Black Exposition mm. uh, One one week of nothing but uh, black businesses yeah. interchanging ideas, and it had culminated in a big show in an arena of 15,000 people. Yeah. And all the black acts in the country came to, all the Motown acts, Smokey Robinson, Miracles, Gladys Knight and the Pips, uh, the OJs, the Temptations. Yeah. Uh, they all were coming to do three or four songs and leave. It was an all-day show. <clears throat> we comedians from Chicago uh, were in the wings in case they needed to strike the stage. They'd say, get up and do five minutes. Sure. I was the only white guy there.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, you
1: know, now, Sammy Davis comes in, and and, and everybody backstage... Says, well, what year this? is this? This is 1971. Okay. Oh, so, so prime 70, Sammy. 70, 72, yeah. And Sammy, at that time... Four months prior to that, yeah. had gone to the White House, received an award from President Nixon, and hugged him. Yeah. Well Sammy hugged stop signs. Yeah. You know, Sammy, Sammy hugged everybody. <laughs> yeah. So when they hugged, when he hugged him, that picture was taken, put on the cover of Jet, the cover of Ebony, all the black publications, and Sammy became persona non grata in the black community because they were very anti-Nixon. Yeah. Now this is the first time he's appearing in front of a black audience since that moment. This is when I was in the wings. waiting. Yeah. Everybody backstage, Sammy Davis here. He had come 3,500 miles, flew from overseas somewhere yeah. to be there. The MC gets on stage, you know, ladies and gentlemen, all the entertainers got in the way, ladies and gentlemen, welcome, please, Sammy Davis Jr. And the crowd began to boo and jeer and scream, huh. boo, get off the stage, yeah. get off the stage, you yeah. Uncle Tom, and all kinds of swear words. Yeah. Boo, boo, booing so loud, Sammy couldn't get in. he tried to get George Rhodes, his conductor, into the countdown, you know, to drown out the boos. and. George Rhodes had the headphones on and couldn't hear. So Sammy just stood there while they jeered and booed and screamed and booed. And Sammy wouldn't leave the stage. The MC comes back out and he said, ladies and gentlemen you know, what is our struggle all about if it is about individual freedom, uh, that if a man wants to be a Protestant, a Catholic, a Jew, yeah. a Democrat, a Republican, or whatever, isn't that what we're fighting for, for the right to have that privilege? He said, the man came 3,500 miles to sing for you. Doesn't he at least deserve to be heard? Mumbo grumble, everybody sat down. <laughs> Sammy went over and changed the sheet music. He did one song and got a standing ovation. I've never seen anything like that in my life. All of us backstage had knots in our stomach because yeah. this great Sammy Davis Jr. being booed, you know, by his own folks. So he's saying I gotta be me from the Broadway play. <laughs> whether I'm right, whether I'm wrong, whether I find a place in this world or never belong, I gotta be me. I'll go it alone if that's how it must be. I can't be right for somebody else if I'm not right for me. Yeah. Now halfway through the song we're going, you you could see he's getting them back. Indian the a standing ovation. I, I, it was like we still don't believe your politics, but that was pretty damn special, pal. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, to this uh, day, I've never seen a greater performance uh, in my fifty-two years in showbiz. I never, I've seen people take a tough crowd and and get them back by the end of the show. I've seen people, you know, on a bad yeah, night. Or I'm, sure, I've never seen anybody take a hostile audience and in one song get a standing ovation. That's the greatest performance. Well,
0: I think it's a good example of how you know people get up in their head; they don't really realize. You know, when you see a picture, you get a community meeting going. People start saying shit, but like when the when the talent's right in front of you, when you when you stand in front of the guy mm. after talking all your shit, and you got to reckon with that guy, yeah. is different, right? Yeah, yeah. Because what they realize in that moment is how much they love Sammy Davis. Yeah, not you know not what he did or what they heard or what they were told to do, yeah. just that like holy shit. Yeah, this guy's Sammy Davis Jr.
1: You know he went on stage when he was two and a half years old. You know, his dad—he's like a vaudeville act, but he was stuck with his dad forever. Well, his dad and his dad told me the story. We called him Daddy Sam. He toured with us for a little while. Really? So, so he just, was
0: back in the picture, or he was just th- th- hanging around? He was
1: hanging around. Oh, yeah. He, but he told what me what was the, the name of that trio? The Will Maston Trio. Yeah. And Will Maston was supposedly Sammy's uncle, but he wasn't bi biologically, but yeah. he called him his uncle Will. Sure. And and what and happened, They were a vaudeville act early on, him were, and his dad. Well, before Sammy, it was Sammy's dad and Will Maston a dance act. And right. you know, yeah. and they did all these great dance yeah. routines. Sammy, <clears throat> when he was a little boy, his father got custody of him. Yeah. And Sammy would sit in the wings every night on an orange crate. He was like like th- three years old. He'd sit yeah. on an orange crate and he would watch his dad and his uncle yeah. do their dance. And they would close with a big buck and wing. Pow pa pow pow pow. Yeah. And so Sammy one night wandered out on stage on their closing number and he was imitating his dad and his uncle doing the dance steps, and the crowd went wild. Sure. And uncle Uncle Will, he thought, ooh. Yeah. We got something here. Yeah. And there was child labor laws in those days. So Sammy could only do like one show a- evening. So each night they would let Sammy wander out on stage and do this little closing thing with him. Finally, the stagehands built Sammy a rocking chair mm. so he could sit. One night, his dad tells me a story. He said, one night, Sammy was in the rocking chair and fell asleep. And now they were closing with their big buck and wing. And Sammy was sleeping. so his dad, they finished their routine. His dad scooped him up and was taking him back to the hotel. Yeah. And they used to put him in a drawer. That's how small he was. He slept in the door. Sammy woke up in the car and realized what happened. And he looked at his father and he started pounding him in the chest with his fist. You didn't let me take my bow. He's pounding. You didn't let me take my bow. Sammy's father said, and from that day on, we never stopped Sammy from taking his bow. (laughs) He was born to be in show business.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, by the time you were working with him, the interesting thing about hearing some of this uh, information about him was that he seemed to be a guy that was always into the mob for money. That's what, that's what she says in, the, in telling the story is that he was never great with money, so he always owed guys money.
1: Well, you know I, that's true. He, by the way, Sammy, owed, he, Harris Hotel adored yeah. him. Uh, Holmes Hendrickson, Bill Harrah, yeah. Holmes Hendrickson, and uh, was the vice president mm. of Harris Hotel, and Doug Bushhausen. I, I, I worked with Sammy in those days. They adored him, and he he packed the house when he went there. So he'd be in debt to them sometimes a couple hundred thousand because <laughs> he, as fast as he got money, he spent it. Yeah. Uh, one day we're we're working the Theater in Chicago, and he wants we're going to Ebony Magazine for lunch. Yeah. And I'm, I'm in a car with him in the limo, and uh, we finish and we're driving down Michigan Avenue and driving pretty fast. And Sammy yelled, stop the car. And the guy slammed on his brakes. We are in front of Gucci. Yeah. He goes into the Gucci store. I want him. He was buying shit. He's packing. He bought a $5,000 watch. And this is 1976, 77. Yeah. He bought a $5,000 purse, I mean, for his wife, Alta yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he just, but he would, He was always in Which de- wife? Alta Bees. That, that would be his third, third? wife. Yeah. And yeah. his final wife.
0: Yeah. 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 But like when we were talking in the, because, you know, we've talked before, but like, I'm just sort of fascinated with some of the stories you got about the the boys, you know? And, and, like, I have to assume that coming up in Chicago... See, I don't think people really realize just how, you know, much they ran the game, right? It was just the way it was.
1: Where were you was, born and raised?
0: 63. I was born in 63, New Jersey. I was raised in New Mexico. So, no, you no. know, my proximity to the mob was very limited to one guy who owned a sandwich shop and claimed, <laughs> yeah, he claimed. that he he, knew, he had pictures of him and 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 Dino and uh and uh, Frank, Frank yeah. you know uh, on the wall he said I, I I'm one of their guys like I don't know what he did for them but all I know is he was in Albuquerque and he, his name was Vinny and he owned a sub shop
1: <laughs> so I, I i have to assume he wasn't active anymore no, uh, we call those guys wannabes. i mean you know, they're in my neighborhood they want to be you, you know how you tell the guys in the outfit or something, we, 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 you know, uh, you'd say to him, hey, hey uh, Tony, uh, what do you do for a living? Yeah. And he would put his finger to his mic and go, shh, yeah. not, you know, Tony probably drove a, worked for a bakery or yeah, something, sure drove, right. a, bro, drove a bread truck. Right. But here's a guy who was in the outfit. You know, He's connected, what we call connected. You yeah. say, hey, Tony, what do you do for a living? Yeah. Tommy, I swear to God, I swear in my mother's life I'm in real estate. I, <laughs> this guy's <is> connected. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't some of them say they were
0: contractors? Yeah, that was a, that was what I learned. There was a guy, that guy Vinny, had a guy come in there. He might have been running some racket in, in Albuquerque, a mm-hmm. little one, mm-hmm. but you know he introduced me to a guy that was at the sub shop. He's like, "That's Benny, the contractor." And I thought, like, <laughs> "Oh, he's he's in buildings." He's yeah. like, "No, no, no. A <laughs> contract killer." Yeah, he's a he's yeah. a guy that uh, puts the muscle, you know. Yeah, but like when you're so as a kid, did you
1: know the presence? Yeah, very. See, where I grew up at on the south side of Chicago, a suburb called Harvey, Illinois. Uh, Harvey was steel mills and factories and taverns, thirty six taverns and all. So when you're growing up, who was in charge? Well, Sam Giancana or well, Capone? He, 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 they were. They and that was Tony Arcado in the city. Yeah. But in the suburbs in Chicago Heights, next to us, the suburb yeah. Chicago Heights, and there was another suburb called Blue Island. Blue yeah. Island was a guy named uh, Tufanelli, Babe Tufanelli. And, Ollie, and, and Sh- in Chicago Heights was a guy named Frankie Laporte. So as we, when you grew up, where I grew up at. You know, they owned the jukeboxes. They owned the, the every vending machine. But are they
0: those guys? Captains? Who was running the whole ga- the whole thing? The whole Chicago mob at that time? Well, at
1: that time it was Tony Arcado. You oh, know, really? From from Chicago. Tony yeah. Arcado. Yeah. And and uh, later became Sam Connor. Okay. And, Of course, after that, uh, you know, um, uh, Jackie Sharon, who I knew I did shows for. And, yeah. Uh, and um, uh, Joey the Clown L- Lombardo. And, yeah. they, 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 are they all, see, Is anyone
0: around anymore?
1: Uh, no, you know they're, they're almost extinct anymore. I, th- I think there were. I think one uh, the USA Today a while back did something about the mob in in Cleveland. It was two guys. You mm. know, uh, now you have you have the you have the uh, uh, Filipino mob. You have the uh, the uh, black the black gangs in Chicago that run the drug trafficking. Yeah. You have um, Russians? Russian yeah. Russians. Uh, uh, the uh, Chinese. Uh, sure. in, in certain communities, you know, yeah. every, every Armenian here, Korean, yeah, yeah, Armenian, I Armenian, yeah, I mean, so, so now
0: it's just, uh, it's like, uh, uh, it's like everything else. It's diversified, and everyone's
1: got their own little uh, bubble. First of all, they legitimized a lot of the stuff the mob did, you yeah. know, uh, other than illicit drugs. Now, you know what I mean? But sure. I mean the, the loan sharks and all that stuff. You know, uh, the guys that would loan you money. Yeah, you know, and and a lot of times that's who you had to go to because the banks wouldn't loan you money, right? And if you needed money, but it was always the vig yeah you know they, they give you 100 that means you own you know 120 or yeah sure now and if you miss that payment but you could pay the vig yeah you say right. i don't have the whole hundred but here's the 20 well that goes out. up again and, and before you know it somebody's coming at three o'clock in the morning <laughs> yeah so when you're a kid you know what you just you'd see him on the streets here's here's how the first time i ever became aware yeah of, of mafia yeah I, and they didn't call them mafia in those days. They yeah. called them the syndicate. Yeah. I was 10 years old, shining shoes in all the bars in my neighborhood. Yeah. There was eight bars in my neighborhood. My mom was a bartender in the last bar. Yeah. She tended bar for Frank Polizzi, who was my uncle, who I later found out was my biological right. yeah, father. Right, yeah, yeah. That's how I'm Italian, you know? Yeah. But nonetheless... Uh, he in the bar one day, I brought my shoeshine box and I was waiting and Frank Polizzi was in the back, my uncle was in the back uh, having lunch and my mom and my and her sister, my aunt, yeah. were serving the customers and they had little sandwiches and everything and out in front comes a truck. Now, m- let me digress. My uncle, Frank Polizzi, worked in a factory for years, uh, came to this country when he was seven years old, worked in a factory for years and bought this bar but he also bought a 78 record player, a Woolitzer old yeah. jukebox that he paid $100 for, and it was his jukebox. Yeah. Well, the, the syndicate, they put jukeboxes and, and pinball machines and all that stuff in all the bars yeah. in that whole area on yeah. the south side. So he's got this jukebox, and he's open for a few weeks. Out in front, when he's in the back having lunch, a truck comes up and they have this beautiful jukebox. Two big guys wheel it down on a two-wheeler. They bring it inside, yeah. and they say, Mrs. Pulizzi sign he signed here? She said, well, what is this? He said, for the jukebox. She said, we have a jukebox. He said, no, no. And we supply the jukeboxes. She said, wait, you know, my, my aunt was a little shy. She goes and gets Frank Polizzi, who yeah. was a tough, took no yeah. shit from yeah. nobody kind of guy. He really yeah. was, a, he was much bigger than me. Yeah. And he was a tough guy. I saw him throw teamsters out of that bar two at a time. Yeah. You know, he yeah. just was a tough guy. Yeah. yeah. So he comes out and he said, what is it, fellas? I remember he's wiping off his mouth with an app. Yeah. What is it, fellas? They said, Mr. Polizzi, sign here for the, he said, I got a jukebox over there. They said, no, 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 Mr. Tuffinale sent the jukebox over. We supply all the. Bars with a jukebox in restaurants with jukebox. He said, Get it out of here. I already got a jukebox. They said, Mr. Pelizzi, we're gonna leave it here. We don't want any problem. He said, Get it out of here. And they wouldn't. He put it on a two-wheeler. Mark, I'm not lying. Yeah. He wheeled it outside and dumped it on the sidewalk. It broke. Yeah. Now they went, Oh boy. About a half an hour later, you hear out in front, yeah. out comes three guys, including this guy, Babe Tuffenali. They come in the bar. <laughs> yeah. My yeah. uncle comes around the bar, and they're getting his face and They're going toe-to-toe. You know, and you don't do, you broke my jukebox. He said, I told your goons to get it out of here. I told them twice to get it. Now they're going back and forth (laughs) and he's, and so they're talking like half Sicilian and half, you know, and, but he's basically told them, you know, look, I'm Italian. Go, you know, go to the Metagans. You know, by the way, that's an expression in Italian Jews, Medagon. It's yeah. not a derogatory term. Yeah. They couldn't say American. Yeah. So the old Italians would accent. They'd say Medagon, He's American. Yeah. yeah, So he said, go to the you know, and muscle them. Don't muscle me. And finally, tough and said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You keep your jukebox in here. I ask you a favor. You ever leave this business and you want a job, I want you to come and work for me. And Frank Pelosi said, I'd never work for the likes of you. Whoa. my and, and now <laughs> yeah that's how tough this guy was yeah. that was my first encounter with yeah. him you know that I knew that they were that we were aware and then of course in the neighborhood you know everybody's he's connected he's connected and all. but if you went to a funeral or a wedding they yeah. were always at every funeral and every wedding why well, this because it was part of the community. In Chicago Heights, if you went to an Italian wedding. Yeah, they're there. Guys, it, it, there isn't any Italian that grew up in my era that didn't know, have a cousin or know somebody. Yeah. And some of them were wannabes and some of them were the real thing, you know. It's
0: weird because, you know, I, I've only encountered a couple of guys, you know, when I was in New York uh, coming up that, that felt, they, I mean, you know, when you watch movies and stuff, you, you know, actors playing these guys. But when you meet them in person, they're scary. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of, you know, they're not, they're scary. It's not, it's not, uh, uh, there's a feeling to it. Yeah. That you know you're in the
1: presence of a killer. Yeah. And it's heavy, man. Well, I got to tell you, I, I have, and I'm going to get into this. I'm going to tell you about some of the greatest scams ever pulled in Las Vegas. Yeah. It, Great scams that the mob pulled. Well, you let know. me ask before you do that. When you and Tim were coming up in Chicago, were, did they still own the clubs? Sure. With oh. Tim and I, the first club we ever worked was was in Chicago Heights, Illinois. Yeah. And but see, even if they didn't own a club, yeah, just like at, when Atlantic City started having gambling, yeah. the first thing they did was make sure there was going to be no mafia influence, as Vegas had in all those years. Yeah. You know, th- they owned the casinos at one time. Yeah. You know, th- I'm going to before I get to well, let me get to Atlantic City, but but. To me, the dumbest people I've ever met in my life, they own those casinos. Those casinos make money. They could have went legitimate, yeah. but they had to skim. Yeah. They had to do something crooked, yeah. and that's why they're no longer in existence. Sure. To me, they were dumb. I mean, you you got all that money making. You own those casinos. You don't need to cheat. You know, they're, they're money makers. And Frank
0: know? had a piece of that Calneva uh, casino
1: for a while, yeah, right? which with Sam that called? and that's why they put him, brought him before a grand jury. <laughs> he later <laughs> yeah. owned a piece of the Golden Nugget, uh, you know, when I started touring with him. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, but we we we'll get into that. But but, uh, it, it, but Atlantic City, when they first started Atlantic City, the first thing they were going to do is make sure there's no mafia influence. So they made sure everybody's record was clean. Yeah. However, the unions, the sure. culinary union, yeah. mobbed up the you know, you bring toilet paper, mobbed up. You know, <laughs> so they they had a, a, a hand, some little footprint in there in each. You know, sure. Uh, you know, that some that was some bad looking guys when I first started working in Atlantic City too. But uh, they were always an influence, and you're right. See, I met some of those guys, and I can tell you about some of those guys, that were really nice guys. I met some of those guys that were psychopathic. They were really psychopathic. You had to really be careful, because they could go off on you in a heartbeat. What kind of guy is going to strangle 12 guys, and it's normal, you know what I mean? Uh, Sure. Another thing, too, about tough guys, I grew up with a lot of tough guys, where where I grew up at... I never saw intellectual combat in my life. Yeah. I never saw two guys debate an yeah. issue. They went outside. They fought. If you were arguing about the Cubs and the White Sox, yeah. outside they go out in the alley and the, and the whole neighborhood come out and watch these Did two people
0: guys. get killed like that. Yeah,
1: oh, I, yeah. <laughs> I had my nose broke twice. I'm, I'm, I'm over <laughs> sports, street fights. You know, yeah. I, I boxed when I was in the Navy. Yeah. too. Uh, you know, but but I, I'm, and again, I, that was a, a, an epiphany for me when I went in the service and I started reading books and yeah. I started realizing when I saw people in the service, we'd have a, a, a black guy from Detroit. We'd have a, a Jewish kid from New York. We'd have a, a redneck from yeah. from uh, Alabama yeah. and they'd get in heated discussions aboard ship. And I thought, Oh, oh they're going to throw it down. But they didn't. Yeah. When it was over, they'd say, you know something? I never thought of it that way. <laughs> yeah. I had never seen that kind of <laughs> combat, sure. intellectual combat. Sure. So you know, going, going back to my old neighborhood, every, there were certain guys that you really didn't want to, you know. I, I, I Didn't I, want to I, look at them I, I, sideways. Well, I, I, there, was, there was a guy in my neighborhood that was cheating in poker when yeah. I first came out of the service. And I caught him. But I wasn't about to. I, I saw what he was doing, but I, I wasn't about to accuse him because if I did, I better be able to prove that. And even if I proved it, he was a kind of guy that would not only want to kill you, he'd want to kill your mom and your sister and, and you, uh, know, you yeah. know, he was one of them psycho kind of guys. So what I did was I slowly told all the other guys in the game, if you say I said this, I'm going to call you a liar, but I'd get out of that game if I was yeah. you. Yeah.
0: Know. <laughs> now, so when you and Tim start working, these guys, they're just because I'm listening to this and I kind of knew it. Did you ever meet Dean?
1: Sure. I I, I played golf with Dean. Dean Dean gave me the greatest advice at all about the wise guys. He said, Tommy, keep them at arm's length. Do not let them do a favor for you. If you do a show for them and they pay you, that's fine. But don't let them do a favor for you he said because they'll never get out of your life. Frank Sinopter told me the last 20 years of his life he yeah. rued the day that he ever made friends with those guys. Yeah. He said cuz Tommy they do a favor for you, yeah. you repay it. 20 years later their son cuz, you know my dad did a favor for you, oh. you repay it. <laughs> 20 more years later the grandsons. <laughs> you know my grandfather, you know. He said he said he, never. Dean told me and Dean was really strict about those guys. You know th- there was a But wife, they liked Dean. Well they, they they who doesn't who didn't like Dean, but yeah. Dean didn't take any crap from them. Yeah. The the Rat Pack, Frank, Sammy and Dean did yeah. shows for the Villa Venice and for certain places yeah. that the wise guys owned. Yeah. And Frank tells a funny story about it, that that uh, at the Villa Venice in Chicago uh, they flew in there, Frank Shamrock and Dean, to do a yeah. show and be like be, at rehearsal. They were backstage, and Dean was watching. The fire marshal came, yeah. and he was with the flashlight, looking at everything. And Dean said to him, "Hey, Pally, you're here one week too early. The fire is next week." And sure enough, they burned that place down a week later. He knew they were pouring money into it, getting money in the la and then you know. <laughs> really. But Dean, in the, it, it's in a, it's in a book. A, a guy from the FBI named John Romer. Yeah. It was it His name is Romer, R O E M E R. Yeah, he was in the FBI for years. Yeah. He was also a good friend of Tony Arcado, even though he was head of the FBI. They they had mutual respect sure. for one another, but but and they would communicate. Yeah, but you know, Romer wrote years later about a wiretap they had when, when John Kennedy got elected. Sam Giancana, and this is in his book, Romer's book, Sam Giancana called Johnny Rosselli from. Uh, F- my, F- Florida, the head mob down there. Yeah. He said, we finally got to connect in the White House. Yeah. And he said, you know, we can go there for favors. And Rosselli said that. And Connor said, no, the canary is going to be, that was the, the code word for Frank. Yeah. The canary is going to uh, represent us. Yeah, Time goes by, and in, in the meantime, there's another show. Johnny Rosselli's in a place where Dean and Frank and Sam, they're all having something to eat afterward. Yeah. And Johnny Rosselli reached over Dean's shoulder to grab some of his shrimp yeah. and Dean slapped his hand and said I don't like people messing up with my food when I'm eating Dean boxed when he was in a na- in, yeah. in the service I mean in in childhood yeah. in Steubenville Ohio yeah. he boxed under the name of Kid Creschetti. Yeah, he could, He had big hands he, yeah. he could fight he, yeah. Frank Sam those guys they were not Sammy wasn't a fighter Frank was a a scrapper but yeah. Dean was a fighter yeah. and, and that's why Frank had such a respect for him yeah. but Dean slapped Johnny Rosselli's hand yeah. now Fast forward in this wiretap, four months go by, and Johnny Rosselli in the wiretap is talking to Sam Giancana. He said, what's going on? We aren't getting anything done. And Rosselli, I mean, Giancana said, the canary won't cooperate, meaning Frank won't. Yeah. For he came to Frank. Frank said, I'm not going there with, with any of So he said, the canary won't cooperate. And and um, uh, Rosselli said, then let's whack the motherfucker. Let's whack him. Yeah. He said, and let's whack that son of a bitch, uh, Martin, because I don't, I don't like him. He said, like to break his fucking jaw. He said, he, you know, he shows no respect to yeah. me. You know, I would have loved to say, Rosali, well, if you go out in the alley with Dean alone, I'd love to see that fight, you know. But yeah. but, and, it, but
0: isn't kind of interesting to me, though, because I realized just listening to it is that, you know, it, they didn't really love showbiz guys. They just knew that they could make money off of
1: oh, tons of money.
0: Yeah. But like, you know, in terms of like as men, they didn't give a fuck about
1: them. Yeah, I, I think. Let me tell you. I, I, what Sam Giancana said when they said let's whack Frank Sinatra, he said, you know, I, I love his music. Yeah, you know, he, he, they, they were fans of his music. Sure. But if they could use you, here I'll give you the greatest scam. Yeah. That the mob pulled off for years and years and years in Las Vegas. Yeah. This is. Almost genius. Here's what they do. Yeah. See, no matter who the star was, it, 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 you know, the singers. Mind you, in Las Vegas in those days, there's like a mile on one side of the Strip and a mile back on the other side. Yeah. Every single hotel had a singer, comic, singer, comic, comic, singer. Yeah, some big, some not so big. Yeah. It's what, the, uh, uh, Cooper, uh, uh, Pat what Cooper, Pat Cooper, that. he said,
0: uh, I was on a podcast once with him, he said, you know, Sinatra's a star, I'm a name.
1: <laughs> so the difference between stars and names are the two sides of the street. I'll tell you how big Sinatra was. He sold out Caesar's Palace, two shows a night, for 14 straight days in a row. And you know what the marquee said? What? He's here. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. didn't say Frank. It didn't, yeah. If you get one name up there, yeah. you were a big deal. But Sure, it, but it, there was a lot of guys doing the thing. But the reason was that why Frank was so popular, the high rollers, the players. So the, the, the Frank Sinatra, if I... You give me five hundred Frank Sinatra fans, you can have twenty thousand Tom Jones fans or Engelbert Humperdinck fans. Because Frank's people were they were gamblers. Yeah, they, they Jewish, Italian, Irish, yeah. Chinese Sinatra fans all over the world. They had million dollar credit lines, two million dollar credit lines. Whenever Frank Sinatra was in Las Vegas, the drop in the pit was enormous. Yeah, that was the that, in those days when the wise guys owned the hotels. Yeah, the first thing they said in the morning, what was the drop last night? Yeah, how much money was gambled? with that terminology? Sure. What was the drop? You want to go see the show? Go see the show. What do you guys want? A room you and your wife? Yeah. yeah. You want something? To eat? Yeah. How much are you going to gamble? Yeah. The drop was always important. Frank drew. in One night in Atlantic City, a real estate guy lost 750000 a Sinatra fan. Yeah. And the next night, 800000 One fan lost $1.5 million. One Sinatra fan, and we were there for a week. Uh. That one man paid for everything for everything for the hotel. It At, at Caesars, uh, at, at, in Las Vegas, yeah. at the Golden Nugget, yeah. Danny Schwartz, and I'm not telling stories out of, out of school. Danny's still alive. Yeah. Danny Schwartz, a Frank Sinatra fan yeah. and friend, lost $5 million in one night. $5 million in one night. He was worth a couple hundred million. But he and Frank went to Steve Wynn and said, hey, can, his friend, can we give him a yeah. break and give him for half? And Danny, to his credit, said, no, I lost it. And I'll pay. He paid half in stock and half in cash. Yeah. This is how Sinatra was powerful to those guys. You know, the drop in the pit was an enormous one. Not only his hotel, where Frank sold out, the hotels around him sold out. Yeah, you know when Frank went to, to the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City yeah. in in, in uh, Las Vegas. Yeah, that's downtown. Yeah, he stayed there two years. I was performing with him then. When he came back to the Strip, all the other hotels put big signs up. He's back. Yeah, you know, oh, just uh, even though he wasn't there because they, they got the overflow. You know, uh, you know. So that's how powerful. He was. Holy shit! Yeah. I forgot where I was. I was going with that. Well, you're uh, gonna tell us about the scam. Oh yeah, here's yeah. the greatest scam that yeah. the that the mob ever pulled. It's classy. They would. Go find a singer. It could yeah. be you know anybody. You know, yeah, I, I shouldn't say names because I don't want to impl- implicate people. But you but... know
0: people who were in, who did it. Well, yeah, they yeah, they sure. pulled
1: a scam off on, on singers all yeah. the time. Yeah. They they would go to a singer and they could do it on a comedian as well. But if, go if, backstage. If, if, they, they, what they would do, they would give the about five hundred dollars. I want to meet this big singer. Right now, these are just uh, low level mobsters. No, no, they could they were they were mobsters from the, like the head of the guy in Connecticut. Yeah, the head of the guy in. Boston, Okay, the head of the guy in Chicago, yeah, sure. the head of the guy in all over the country, yeah. but they would Duke, the maitre d'. I got my mom here. Yeah, She's a big fan of his, this singer. Yeah. The d would go backstage and yeah. say, Hey, big Tony from, yeah. from uh, Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah, big Tony, sure. he's a pretty big guy. Yeah. He's a big fan. His mom is a big fan. Yeah. They just want to meet you and so you'd let them backstage. And sure enough, the guy was real nice. He'd bring his mother back there, yeah. a couple guys with him, take pictures. Thank yeah. you very much. And, and, and they'd leave. Yeah. You're very, thank you for being kind to of my mother. Yeah. Next day, a dozen roses in the dressing room from big Tony from Hartford or wherever. Yeah. yeah. Okay, now, uh, thank you very much for being kind of my mom. You you worked in Vegas every four months. So four months later, this singer is back in Vegas. And now, Big Tony's there again. Yeah. And he sends no backstage to Major D. Again, gets another 500, goes back, yeah. and tells him, Big Tony's in town. And yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember him. Nice yeah. guy, he sent me yeah. the flowers. They come backstage, and they got a couple guys with them yeah. and a knockdown, take your breath away, gorgeous young girl named yeah. Carmela or whatever. Sure, yeah. She's smoking, smoking hot. Yeah, so... She, they meet the backstage. Everybody's so nice. And before they leave, the big guy says, "Hey, thanks for being kind to my people again. Yeah. My mom still loves you. By the way, yeah. Carmela thinks you're pretty. You're pretty hot. Yeah. Well, Carmela's with Vinny. no, no. She's she's alone. Yeah. Next thing you know, Carmela's with the singer. Yeah. And they spend the weekend together and everything. And they go back and they exchange numbers and everything. Yeah. Two months later, Carmela gets a hold of him. She said, "I'm in terrible trouble. I lied to you. I'm not 22. I'm 17 and I'm pregnant." Wow, I'm married. I got kids. I, got, I, I know. I didn't know what to do. And I, now, he hangs up. Now, if luck is with the wise guys, yeah. he calls the wise guy. Yeah. If he doesn't call the wise guy, the wise guy calls him. He yeah. said, hey, what's this I hear about Carmela and you? And you, Oh, well, uh, you know, uh, you know, she, you know hey. I didn't know she was young. He said, hey, don't worry about it. You took care of my family. Now, Big Tony, you took care of my family. Don't you worry about yeah. it. I don't want anything to happen. Nothing's going to happen to her. You were nice to me. The favor. Yeah. believe me. You are take care of it. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. Now, about six months go by, and they get a hold of them. Hey, listen, you know where I told you I'm from Connecticut? The Catholic Church, we're doing a big charity, and we're trying to raise money for the orphans. If you'd come here and sing, you know, are you kidding me? This guy saved your marriage. The singer goes there. You know, does the show? They make two hundred fifty thousand dollars for the charity. Yeah. The mob takes two hundred thousand. Fifty thousand goes to the orphanage. The wise guys cut up the money, and guess who gets ten grand? Carmela. She was in on yeah. it from Jump Street. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They did that over and over and over and over for years it's and years. It's kind of
0: a long con, isn't it? Yeah, but, yeah. But I you mean, know I mean, you're just talking. You're talking like between the first visit and and then the payoff. It's like almost
1: a year. Yeah, but that was just one of their hustles. Yeah, they had other hustles. Like what? Yeah. Oh, yeah, and the other thing, too, when people talk to me about uh, about the fights, the, the, they fix the fighter or yeah, something yeah. like that. You know, I boxed when I was in the service. I'm not an expert, but I, I, I know a little—I I, I can sure. watch and tell you, you won that round or he won that round. Yeah. You know, it's hard to—in the old days, you could fix a fight. A, a fighter would go down. Yeah. But some, when you're we're boxing sometimes, and say you're supposed to go down in a fourth round, but a guy throws a punch at you, and just by reaction, boom, you fire, and you, you might knock this guy out. Sure. <laughs> you know, so— the way they fix the fight in Las Vegas, there's three judges. Yeah. You know, you pull one judge aside and you say, look, here's 50,000 cash or whatever number. I don't want you to cheat. If my boy loses the round, he loses the round. I don't want you to cheat. But if there's one round too close to call, I want you to shade my guy. That's all I'm asking. Now, I can watch fights and say, oh, he won that round or he won that round. Yeah. But if there's a couple of rounds. I'll say, that was, I don't know. That could go either way. How many fights have you seen in Vegas? One fourteen to one thirteen. That was another way. It's you get to a judge, yeah, and all, and he's and if you e- reviewed the film, you'd say, well, yeah, it could have went that way. Yeah, all they're saying is if there's one round that's too close to call, I want you to shade my guy. Yeah, if my guy gets knocked out. He gets knocked out. If my guy. So that's he, just
0: a gamble on the mobsters' part too. Yeah, it is. But, I mean, because like, there's nothing that guy can do, and he can see when the, something's on the
1: edge. Yeah, but he might lose that money. By by one, but but I have to tell you, in most cases, yeah. in most cases, there's always one or two rounds that are too close to call. And I've I've been at those fights. You go. Whoa. So you're not betting on the round. You're betting on the fight. you are betting on the fight. The total yeah. fight. Yeah. You know, I, I was with the King brothers one night when they put you know Michael and Roger King, who and King World, they put two hundred fifty thousand on on the. Tommy Hearns. Yeah. And I swear to God, Tommy Hearns won that fight. And, and Sugar Ray Leonard is my friend. I, yeah. I, I, I love him to death. We played yeah. golf together. But I, I, uh, Tommy won that fight. Yeah. But Tommy didn't win that fight. <laughs> <laughs> he yeah. lost by one point, you know. So, like, in terms of, like, when you were with Frank, I mean, did he talk about those guys? Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Well, we were long. You know, as when I first started turning with Frank, he was the boss of this magnificent tour. Yeah. Later, he became a buddy. He, he, uh, I, you know, we'd hang around. Sure, I picked a, I used to be a bartender, and I used to pick up on personalities sometimes. Yeah. But I picked up on him when I first met him that he didn't want another fan. He had millions of fans. Sure, he didn't want you gushing over him. Yeah, you know. And and there were times I wanted to say, "Damn, Frank, what you just yeah. did tonight?" You because know, he was great. You know, uh, and and I loved his films. He won the Academy Awards. Sure. I, but I didn't do that. I I always stayed away from you know. You know, yeah, a being a family, yeah. yeah, and and then at, so we became friends, and toward the end of his life, he was more like a father to me. So, sure. when I'd go stay at his compound down in Rancho Mirage, we'd ride around in the desert till dawn. You know, uh, he 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 never went to bed till the sun came up. He was nocturnal, whether we were on the road or off the road. Really, yeah, and he wanted you to hang with him too because he he, <laughs> yeah. he stayed up till dawn. Yeah, The hardest I ever made him laugh one night in Vegas. Uh, we'd been doing one nighters all over the country, and we went into the desert inn. And after the second show, yeah. it's 4.30 in the morning. Yeah. And he he just, look, you can see he's going to go all night. I got up on the table. It was like four guys at the table. I want to go to bed. I got up on the table. He said, hey, where are you going? I said, I'm going to bed. He said, what for? <laughs> I said, I got to get up early in the morning, go to the cemetery and visit those guys. He said, what guys? I said, all those guys who die trying to stay with you every night. <laughs> <laughs> so he laughed. So we'd ride around the car till dawn. And, yeah. and those nights, toward the end of his life, when he didn't, he knew the end was near, he uh, as the song goes, uh, he set opening up a little bit more about regrets, you know, yeah. and, and, and things like that. And, yeah. and one of them was when he said, I rude the day that I ever made friends with those guys. They won't get out of your life. 20 years.
0: That was with the deal he made with Giancana in the, in, in the White House, so yeah. that's what you talked yeah. about yeah. before. Yeah, yeah.
1: That, that, was, that was... Because
0: what, he knew those guys and they knew him, but then he wanted to be close to Kennedy and he realized the way to do that was to be the middleman.
1: Well, they... Came to him, Joe Kennedy came to him yeah. when when John Kennedy was running. Joe sure. Kennedy was an astute, astute politician. Yeah. And all he ever wanted was one of his sons to become president of the United States. He wanted his first son who got killed in World War II. Yeah. And he came to Frank. He, he called Frank to a meeting. And he told Frank, he said, my boy can't win. My son can't win. He he knew that they couldn't win West Virginia. It was 95% Protestant. They were never going to vote for a Catholic. But
0: then they get those guys, the those mobsters, to buy out the
1: local politicians? That's what he, he said. And we can't win Illinois. Yeah. He said, the downstate Republicans are going to beat us. We can't re-. He said, you know the guys who can go to them. He said, I know them too, but I can't go to them. What they don't know about the Kennedys, what most people do know, you know, they were bootleggers in the early, sure. earlier days. And they what they did is they, they worked and went legitimate. And- Put everybody in legitimate businesses, yeah. you know. So the Irish mob was a pretty tough mob at one time in, in the country before the Italian mob in New York, in the, in Chicago, yeah, and everywhere, yeah, yeah, Chicago. The Irish mob was the they were the big guys, you know. That's what the Saint Valentine's Day Massacre. Oh, well, I didn't realize that, that that
0: Joe Kennedy's bootlegging business is what made Seagrams yeah. all the money, yeah, because it was legal in Canada. So he was running that shit down from and the old man, uh, what was it? What was the guy's name? Uh, Bronfman. Was it Edgar mm-hmm. Bronfen the head of Seagrams, and that
1: that they they're the ones that made that guy rich? Yeah. yeah. So that's what, so. What they said, to Frank, when he said, Frank, you know those. He said, I can't go to those guys, but you can. Yeah. Gene Condon, those guys, yeah. So what happened was uh, they convinced the the unions in West Virginia to a lot of contacts yeah. that Kennedy was a guy to vote for that he was going to be, uh, you know, pro Hoffa and pro union I think, and pro the union, and then. They, and down, they also went to Chicago where, you know, the old joke is, you know, um, 10,000 dead people voted in Chicago or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to say, if 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 you want to campaign in Chicago and run for office, don't go to the corner taverns. Go to the cemeteries. That's where the boats are, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, But anyhow, so now Kennedy wins the election because that last state in Illinois swung that election, you know. Yeah. And so anyhow, the the rumor always is, is that, it, that it was a rigged thing. Now, meantime, you know, Frank then... John Kennedy is going to come and stay at his compound in Rancho Mirage where I used to stay. So this is before my time of course. Why well, he doesn't go, right? He at the last minute. At the, Frank spent 1.3 million at that time like setting up like a heliport building, building Yeah, a, yeah, because yeah. the president of the United States was coming. He told his mother, yeah. he said, Ma, you and your dad came, you and dad came to this country from the old country yeah. and in one generation the president of the United States yeah. is going to stay with our home." Anyhow, Couple like a week before, Peter Lawford comes to him and says, "You know, Jack can't come here and be here." Bobby says he can't come here, and Frank said, "Why? What are you talking about?" He said, "Because," Bobby said, "Because you know those people." Yeah. And Frank said, "Those people, uh-huh. those people. His dad sent me to <laughs> because I know those people." Yeah. You know, and and he, and he he really got really mad, and and uh, you know, it was a real tough time for him. He loved Jack Kennedy, but he was a little bit. Different about Bobby. <laughs> sure. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I mean, it was kind of, a, I don't, I, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of stories and plenty of uh, books about the dynamic between those two brothers no. and, you know, and the relationship. Because I know that, you know, I guess it's pretty proven that Giancana and and Kennedy, uh, you know, were sharing mistresses. Uh-huh. And and I think
1: Frank too. Her name was Judith Campbell. Yeah, Judith Exner Campbell. And it didn't it didn't yeah. end yeah. well for yeah. her. Yeah. She yeah she was well she ended up going back to England and everything. But but uh, it supposedly <clears throat> there's rumor that that Marilyn Monroe, yeah, you know, and and Sam kind and and that I don't know. You know um before yeah, your time. Yeah, before my time. I heard people talk about it, but if I didn't see it, then I, you know I can only go what people tell me happened you know yeah 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 you know, the, the but, people were there eyewitnesses that were there you know yeah 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 what was uh
0: what was frank's bodyguard name
1: jilly rizzo jilly yeah, yeah. you knew that guy real well oh, right? yeah he, jilly had a glass eye yeah he had it knocked out i think in a fight he was a tough he was tough guy from the bronx i
0: heard that on this story that sammy davis jr premiered his glass eye at ciros
1: yeah at the comedy store yeah yeah that's right Yeah, that's right. Well, you you know, uh, Frank Sinatra had a strange sense of humor. Uh, Julie had a glass eye and Sammy had a glass eye. So one Christmas, Frank bought a set of binoculars and saw them in half and sent one to Julie and one to Sammy. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: pretty funny. So I want want to hear that story again about Johnny Carson. That thing is the best fucking story. That's the best Sinatra story. Well, you know, I mean, there's a lot of
1: great Sinatra stories, but this is how this all this happened. Do you tell that one in your show? No, not the one about Johnny Carson. I love it. Yeah, but I put it in my book only because, and the only reason I put it in the book, and I would have not have done that, but because... Um Henry Bushkin, Frank Sinatra, or Johnny Carson's lawyer, tried to take credit for saving Johnny's life from Crazy Joey Gallo. Right. You know, and and, and at that time, he was about a 26-year-old attorney. There was no way in hell Crazy Joey Gallo would have listened to a young attorney like that. Yeah. He he wanted to kill Johnny Carson. I really believe that Frank Sinatra, because Frank Sinatra told me the story and Julie told me the story. I was appearing on The Tonight Show. You know, I did 61 appearances on The yeah. Tonight Show, so I was always doing a, a spot. And one time I was on The Tonight Show on a weeknight, and I was going into Las Vegas to open for Frank Yeah. at the MGM Grand. And when I got there, Jilly says to me, gee, I saw you on The Tonight Show, You know, and you never even mentioned that you were coming here. Yeah. I said, I put it in the credits. You know, Johnny introduces sure. you. Yeah. I said, but for some reason, about Frank Sinatra, Johnny jumps over the story sometimes. Sometimes they'd say, "If you got a... You know, as a telecorder, and say when you sit down to talk to Johnny after you do your stand up, uh, give us some funny sure. lead ins. Yeah, so I'd say a, I got a funny story about Frank and I in a bar one night, and Johnny would jump over that story. So, and here's that. This is back in the 80s, yeah, you know, and in in the late 80s, 86, 87. Yeah, and, anyhow. So now I tell Julie, I said, geez, and I've seen Johnny at Frank's house in, in Malibu and everything, and, and Frank liked Johnny, yeah, uh, uh, Johnny and Johnny liked him. But Julie, see, yeah, Frank, he said Johnny's got a strange relationship uh, with Frank. He's a little nervous around Frank, and Julie proceeds to tell me this story. Yeah, and this is the story he told me, and this is exactly the same story Frank told me three weeks later. Julie says that when Johnny Carson was a new talk show host in New York, he'd been on the air about two years. Yeah, he was a new young star, young kid. As yeah. you know, he went from a game show to being host of the Tonight Show yeah. in New York. Well. He went out, he, he drank, he'd go out and drink after the shows with Ed McMahon, who was sure. a good drinker. Johnny, by his own admission his whole life, was a bad drinker. A couple of drinks, and he'd act like a high school sophomore sometimes. Yeah. This is a naval officer, a, a, a college grad, a, a well-educated guy, yeah. but a couple of drinks, and he acted foolish. When I was a bartender, my buddies, I always said, I, I watch them, two drinks, they'd either become one of the three hours. They'd either become... Um, Rocky Marciano, they want to fight everybody in the yeah. place. Or to become Rudolph Valentino, they want to fuck everybody yeah. in the place. Or to become Rip Van Winkle, and they just don't. Yeah. expected <laughs> yeah. re- 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 reacted to each one different. Yeah. You know, anyhow, Johnny Carson was like uh, that guy who wanted to screw everybody on yeah. A couple of drinks. So, Julie tells a story that one night... You know, we got to digress about Crazy Joey Gallo. Yeah. At those days, there were five dons in New York. You know, don of Queens, the don of Brooklyn, don of Manhattan, different dons, and, and, and the five dons of New York. And you could not hit anybody, kill anybody, or anything, according to mafia legend, until you got approval from the top. You didn't do that on your own. You had to go out and get approval. You don't. No one gets whacked unless they they all get together and agree upon this. Yeah. Joey Gallo didn't give a damn. He did what he wanted to do. You know, they wanted only Sicilians. He brought black guys in from Harlem into run numbers, and he was a renegade. He, he I think, he killed. Was this the guy.
0: after uh, he did jail time, right? And he was like, "Fuck yeah. it." Yeah. yeah, he
1: was. He was really. He was one of those kind of guys you want to mess with. He was yeah. really kind of crazy. They call. That's why they call him Crazy Joey yeah. Gallo. You know. Yeah. Well, anyhow, what family was he in? Do you know? I I, I think what they I think. What the, they were saying, they were either with um, was it the Gambino? It was either with the Gambino, but he, he whatever it was, he pulled out from them oh. and he went on his own and he was doing everything on his own. Yeah. It was only a matter of time, sure, but but again, he was a crazy guy and he hung around with crazy guys. Who so crazy Joey Gallo comes in and Julie's bar, Julie had a bar on West 48th yeah. Street, and that bar, all the cops and robbers hung out there the FBI would come in there you know the the, uh, heads that was like Switzerland that was like you know that was where you go and you know and you you left the work outside well but there was a lot of a lot of you know peeking in on you know the FBI especially you know but anyhow long story short all the celebrities hung out there it was the place to go and Frank went there of course and so anyhow this particular night crazy Joey Gala comes in with two girls what we Italians call gomads. you know if you're married if you're single and you have a girlfriend, yeah, she's your girlfriend, but if yeah. you're married and you have a girlfriend, she's your gumadi yeah, and your Gumadi is really someone special. Uh-huh. gomadis'. you know they, in Chicago, I used to joke the wise guys had three birthdays, three holidays, yeah, guys. Yeah. St Joseph's birthday, St Rocco's birthday, and december twenty third that was Gumadi Christmas Eve. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so now, yeah. later, I'll tell you the, the greatest Gamadi joke you know, but yeah, anyhow, yeah. he he's in uh, Joey Gallo comes in with these two Gumads, yeah. and two guys. And he says, that, Jilly, I need to use the back room to talk to the guys. And, and Jilly says, yeah, they go in the back room and the two girls are at the bar and they got mini skirts on. Yeah, yeah. It's one in those years and it's some of that. Anyhow, moments later, Johnny Carson walks in with Ed McMahon and Johnny's had a lot to drink. Uh-huh. So he... Sees. And this is the way Julie told me the story. He sees the girls and he's walking. People start to recognize Johnny. He puts his fingers around. Shh, shh yeah. And he sneaks up behind the girl yeah. and he puts his hand up her dress yeah. and she lets out a scream. He puts his hand up her miniskirt. Yeah, yeah. Screaming. Hey, gotcha. You know, she's screaming and screaming. Yeah. Julie turns around and he sees it and he goes, oh, gee. Julie jumps over the bar and he comes up and he grabs Johnny Carson to McMahon. And he said to Ed McMahon, get him out of here. Get him the fuck out of here now. Yeah. yeah. So. Ed had the wherewithal to get Johnny out of there. Yeah. Meanwhile, she can't stop screaming. Yeah. The girl can't stop screaming. So, crazy Joey comes out. Of the, finally, comes out of the back, yeah. and she's hyperventilating now. Ah, ooh, ah. Yeah. And Joey's, what's wrong? What's wrong? What happened? What happened? And Julie said, she's going. hi, Oh, And he smacks her. Joey smacks her, and she hits the ground. She goes, Johnny Carson, reach up under my dress and grab me. He went out the door, and Joey Gallo goes crazy. He looks at the two guys. She's, Go find him. Go find him right now go find him, beat his fucking brains in, cut his cock off and stick it in his mouth. Hear what I'm saying? Stick it in his mouth, that son of a bitch. And then they run out the door. He turns on Jilly. You son of a bitch. You let this matter on. You know, you let this guy, with my gum And Jilly said, Joey, I, I, I didn't know. I mean, I, I'm behind the bar. I'm working. I, mean, I didn't know. And, and he's you know, he's pacing and he's going back and forth. And these guys come in and, and they're all full of sweat. They couldn't find him and Joey leaves with him. Now the words all over Manhattan Johnny's a dead man. Yeah, Johnny's dead. The next day, Dave Tebbett from NBC was a big guy with NBC for yeah. years. Comes in and Julie said he talked to me. He said, "Julie, it's all over town what happened last night. Yeah. You, can you go talk to Joey Gallo for me, <laughs> for Johnny?" Yeah. And Julie said, "Me talk to Joey Gallo." The five dons of New York and talk to him. I'm gonna talk to him. He said, "Could you ask Frank?" Julie, of course, takes it to Frank. Frank had already heard about what was yeah. going on, and wow. he said, "Dave Tebbett wants to know if you'll talk to crazy Joey Gallo." Yeah. And Frank says what Julie said. He said, me? The Five Dons of New York can't talk to him. I'm going to talk to him. I'm a singer, you know. Anyhow, long story short, it's it's Johnny's coming in, with, you know, and coming in with security and everything and hiding and and like a week goes by. Frank's appearing in New York, Crazy Joey Gallo, and now this is Julie f- telling me the story, yeah. and then Frank telling me the same story. Crazy Joey brings his family there uh, to see the show and had a couple tables, and after the show, brought everybody backstage. Yeah, and. Julie said and they're all visiting and everything and Frank signing autographs and taking pictures and everything. And they're leaving and no one's left in the dressing room but Julie and Frank and Joey Gallo. And Joey says to Frank, Thank you for what you did. Thank you for treating my mom so, so well. blah, blah, blah. And, and they said, And and I love you, Cheech, you know. And and Italian if a guy's name is Frank, it's Francesco or they call him Cheech for whatever yeah. He said, I love you, Cheech. And and Frank said he said, If you ever need anything, let me know. And Frank said, There is something. Now You'd have to see, visually see this. Joey Gallo goes up, and he's standing right next to Frank's face. He said, name it. And he opens his hands up, like, name it. Yeah. You know, op- open it. And Frank said, Johnny Carson. And Joey Gallo's eyes got real. And he grabs Frank's mouth. He grabs his hand on his mouth, on Frank's mouth, real hard. And he's holding Frank's mouth, you know, with his hand like this. And he said, you stick up for that piece of shit, that scumbag who put his hand to my gumatis dress. Now, he took his hand on Frank's face and Jilly said you could see his fingerprints on Frank. He's holding the voice that hard. Yeah, yeah. And he said, You stick up for that piece of it with my guma." And Frank said, Joey, he didn't know that was your guma." He said, I don't give a damn. I don't give a damn. Whatever woman. He thinks because he's got a talk show, because he's, a, he's a, 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 a talk show host, he can do that to women. He said, He's dead. He's dead. And Frank said, You ask me if, if, if you could do something for me. He, he's so sorry. He would come right now on his hands and knees you, but he knows you're a man of respect. He's terrified. He would come and apologize himself, but he's terrified. And and he said, he's so sorry for what he did. Anyhow, so he said, I'm asking you, can you give the kid a break? Can you just give him a break? And Julie told this story, and Frank told it the same way. He started pacing back and forth by the door. Yeah. And every time he'd stop it, he'd look at Frank, uh, and he'd start pacing again. And finally, he went to the door. He opened up the door to go out, and he turned around, and he said to Frank and Julie, he said, you tell Johnny Carson that he breathes because he knows Frank Sinatra. And he, he slapped his hands like blackjack dealers <laughs> when they're done with their shift, you know. Yeah. He said, tell him he breathes, because he knows Frank Sinatra. And then, and, and that was it. Now, six months go by, and, and uh, you know, Frank told this story, too, that in those days, those guys were crazy, Frank and those guys, sometimes they'd have cherry bombs, they'd throw them out of the limo. Yeah, yeah. Boom, you know. Yeah. Johnny comes in after six months. It's all clear. He's in, in, in a booth with a girl at Julie's Bar. Yeah. And Frank rolled a cherry bomb underneath his booth. And when it went off, ba-boom, <laughs> you know. And there's an old, you watch the reruns of the Tonight yeah, Show. Yeah, yeah. There's one of them where Jim, uh, Ed McMahon says to uh, uh, Johnny Carson, what would you do last night? He said, well, he went around the town, hit some of the places. He said, those guys at Jilly's have a very strange sense of humor. Uh, but but it, it's from that night. You know. The only reason I told this story yeah. is for... Henry Bushkin to yeah. say as a young lawyer, he yeah. went and resolved this. There there was an, only Frank Sinatra could have saved Johnny Carson's life. Uh, I really believe that.
0: And then you think like, but you know, he Frank was on the tonight show a lot, but it was always a little weird because Johnny knew that. You know, if if, if
1: I did that for you, Mark, yeah. if you did some dumb thing when you were drinking one night. And and, and somebody was somebody's going to kill you. And I did a favor for you. Yeah. I, as good a friends, say we are, you yeah. would you would still feel uncomfortable around me, or I would anyhow. I, every time I I'd see, I I'd, I'd just feel uncomfortable. Well, you know what you know is that you know you know what Johnny knows is that that guy's the real fucking deal,
0: right? Yeah. Is that Johnny knew that if he could save his wife, he could end it. <laughs> <laughs> you you put that very well. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? A
1: yeah. favor is a favor, but you never had any problem with them ever. With the wise guys? Yeah. You know, in Chicago, I I knew those guys. I did shows for them. There was a charity called Unico. Yeah. And it was an Italian charity. And every year they had a golf tournament. Yeah. And every year they'd hire a comedian. Yeah. And they'd they'd ask me to do it one year. And then the next three years, I would get other comedians. I got Jay Leno, the gig, Johnny Campanera. Uh Uh-huh. You know, and they'd take care of you. But... uh, And so, you know, Jackie Saron at that time was running the Chicago Mile. Yeah. And so he he was with the head of that, that golf tournament. Yeah. And you know, he, yeah. They, they'd come and talk to me. And, and, uh, you know, when I work with Frank, they, you know, they were always in the audience. Yeah. You know, and, uh, were they? Yeah. To, to the, to a fault. At one point, Frank no longer wanted <clears throat> that connection, but Jilly kept the connection S- to the point that even at one time, Frank, uh, Jilly didn't work with us for almost two years. He went to work for Pia Zadora yeah. because Barbara Sinatra took the heat. Frank, would they'd, they'd say, "Well, Barbara doesn't want these guys backstage," and it was, really it was Frank. To yeah, be honest with you. Right. So these guys would come and hang around Caesar's, wherever we worked at, <laughs> and these wannabe guys, and they would, they would, you know, they'd say to me, they'd say, "Hey, Tommy, uh, what did you, um, what did you, you and the old man have dinner?" I say, "Yeah." What did he have? I saw oh, he had linguine and clam sauce and he likes some little garlic rolls. Say, oh yeah. Then they would go tell everybody. Yeah, I had dinner with Frank last night. He had linguine and clam sauce. You know? <laughs> I knew what they were doing, but.
0: <laughs> and uh so but did you did, were you, how close were you with Dean ultimately? I, did you I, just play golf a couple times. Uh, yeah,
1: and and but I I did the Dean Martin roast, you know, and then I did some shows with Dean, you know. He was he was so great to be around. Uh Dean wouldn't say anything all day long. And then he'd say one line, and you'd fall off the chair. Yeah. He always had these clever lines. Dick Martin thought that Dean Martin was one of the greatest comedians of our time, even though he was not known as a comedian. Yeah. He was a very clever guy. But uh, Frank, he made Fra- Frank made Frank laugh all the time. I'll tell you a great story. We were, uh, Frank was using the teleprompters. Yeah. As he got older in life, he was forgetting lyrics, so he would use the teleprompters. And yeah. then... It, just knowing they were there, he, he, he would do the whole show sometimes and not even look at them. But sometimes if he felt it, he would look at the top yeah, of sure. But he's trying to get Dean to do that. Yeah. Dean was doing half songs in Vegas and not finishing the whole song and yeah. getting a lot of letters to the president of the hotel. Really? Bernie Rothkopf that, came he, to him and dumped 1,800 letters on Dean's dressing room and said, we're getting calls. You're, you know, Dean would you know forget the lyrics or something like that. But is it because he didn't give a fuck? Yeah, partially and partially cause he'd have, have a couple of drinks or something. Uh-huh. But, but he. So Frank's trying to get him to do the teleprompters. Yeah. He said, the, they called each other Dag, short yeah. for Dago. You know, yeah. hey, Dag. And, and by the way, I'm on a show a while back, and the guy said, boy, they couldn't do that today. I said, they couldn't do what? Well, they couldn't call each other Dag. I said, why? He said, well, no, that's politically incorrect. I said, I'd like to be in a room. I'd hope he'd be on the 17th floor <laughs> when you tell Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra, hey, you guys can't call each yeah, other yeah, that. Yeah, Open yeah. up a window. You're going out the window. Yeah, now. yeah, but Anyhow, so Frank's on his ass, on Dean's ass to get the teleprompters. Yeah. So, And finally, you know, Frank and I are working in Detroit at the Fox Theater. We did a matinee, and and we're in a suite, and we're watching a football game. And the phone rings, and it's Dean Martin's manager, Mort Viner. Mm. And he says uh, that Dean used the teleprompters last night in Las Vegas, and he loves them. He came off stage and said, book me on a world tour. These things are great. Frank said, yeah. Get him on the phone. Get him on the phone. You know, he gets him on the and He said, hey, Dag, damn it, I'm telling you for years. These young kids, they use those plugs in their ears. They heard the lyrics in their ears. You know, we're not getting any younger, and I've been after you for years. Ah, damn it, you're just such a hardhead. And Dean's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dean says where are you guys at? He said, hold on one second. He said, Tommy, where are we at? I said, we're in Detroit. He said, we're in Detroit. Dean said, did you have to look in the fucking teleprompter to find out where you're at? (laughs) And Frank threw the phone down on the floor. He said, he got me again.
0: (laughs) I love those stories. Well, it's good seeing you, man. I'm glad we did it. I'm glad we did a couple of good, uh, good mob stories, and
1: you're doing all right. Yeah, I'm doing real good. Yeah, life is really good. I, You know, I I, I want to point out that I grew up... The Italian people in my family were hardworking, decent sure. people, yeah. and they hated mafia. Yeah. They really hated the whole thing about it. You know, the biggest problem was, and we can close with this, the movie The Godfather glorified Yeah, what they did. You know, the, the, the movie The Godfather glorified what they did, and after that, all of a sudden, everybody, you know, with an Italian name, you know, thought, hey, cool, I'll get more respect if I you know, because they saw the movie The Godfather, but it, it, it glorifies what they did. What Godfather Three was the biggest mistake of all. What it should have been was Godfather three should have been that now everybody is legitimate. When Michael Corleone he got Everybody in the family in the legitimate businesses that should have been Godfather Three. Yeah. Now they're all working for major corporations in America, yeah. and they're even in the FBI. Sure. The, his, the family as in CIA. He got them all legitimate, and he backs off. But instead, but, it was about the it was about the Pope, right? Yeah. I can't but, remember. Yeah. But what the movie should have been was now yeah. what they find out is while they're in legitimate businesses. Yeah. They're not much different from the mafia. They can kill you, but in a different way. Sure. They just kill your career, yeah. destroy everything about you. You know, and, and, and so what that would have been. Then he would have said, "Just when I tried to get out, he comes back in." Because even though they're in legitimate power structure of our country, there's also there's still shenanigans. Morally, going morally compromised, exactly.
0: And did you did you ever know guys that got destroyed by the mob?
1: Guys that got whacked by him? Well, not whacked or just, you know, ruined. Well, I, 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 well, I you know, first of all, Tony Spolatro, the movie Joe Pesci did at yeah. Casino. Yeah. T- he was from Chicago. I knew him. I'm, and his brother, Michael, used to come to my shows when I did charity shows. The guy shows.
0: that Joe Pesci played in The Joe Pesci paid. Oh, my God. Joe Pesci
1: came to me before the before the, he did it. Yeah. And he said, tell me, I know you knew him. Um, tell me some things about him because he was studying what, how we could play him. Yeah. He was a mean little guy. But when I, when I was in Vegas, if he'd see me now, he was blackballed. Yeah, for, He was on the blacklist, yeah. in the black book. Yeah. He was blackballed from all the casinos. Yeah. You know where I saw him at? Where? In the casinos. Yeah. <laughs> so he yeah. he would If I saw him, he'd see me, and he'd be with some guys. He'd say, Hey Tommy, come here. And he'd introduce me to the guys, and he'd say, Tommy, he's from Chicago. Did Joe Pesci do a good job with him? He did a great job. Jeez. Joe Pesci is one brilliant actor, Forget about winning the Academy Award, which he did win. But what about comedy?
0: Yeah,
1: Joe did. Joe, so Joe funny, he'll yeah. make your hair stand on end when he plays one of those guys, because yeah. he knew those guys too. But he also did Cousin Vinny. Yeah, I'm going to have you on the floor.
0: No, he's very funny. So yeah. is Frank Vincent, I think.
1: Oh yeah, can I can I tell you a quick yeah. Joe Pesci? Yeah, I'm 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 in the locker room and I'm shaving. Where? At Lakeside Country Club. Yeah. I'm a member, and Joe's a member there. And Joe is out here. Yeah, and and yeah, yeah. in uh, Tulalip. Yeah, and so Joe, Joe, and I remember the same country club. But I've known him even before yeah. that. Uh, he, he's been a friend for a lot of years. But he comes in the dressing room one day, and they were going to do Cousin Vinny too, but they they didn't do it because yeah. uh, Melissa Torme did not want to do that. Yeah. you know, she didn't want to play that. She won the Academy Award for that character. But you know, so I'm I'm shaving, and Joe comes in the dressing in, in the men's room, and he said, "Hey Tommy," he said, "You know, they may do Cousin Vinny too, and if they do, I'd like to uh, do um." put some of my friends in the film. He said, and I'm shaving. He said, Tommy, you you can't act, can't you? And I put the razor down. I said, Joe, over 40 years at that time, I've been in the business. And you say something like that to me, that makes me so fucking mad that you would ask me a question like that. that You can act. He said, Tommy, I'm asking. I said, Joe, I'm acting. (laughs) Now this is what he goes. He goes, Oh, now he wasn't impressed at all. He said, anyhow, if I, if I do get these things, he said, I'll have you come and read for a part. I said, wait a minute Joe. Cousin Vinny, you're the star of the show. I got to fucking read. I got to fucking read. And you're the star. You're the big guy and I got to read. He said, Tommy, actors read for parts. I said, Joe, I'm acting. He said, fuck you. You couldn't get a spot in this movie if you financed the movie. You understand that? Fuck you. And he turns around and he walks out and I go out and I said, Joe, I'm only kidding. He said, Tommy, I'm acting. (laughs) (laughs) He got you. He got me. Good talking to you again. You too. (laughs)
0: Okay, that was uh, Tom. Good stories, right? The book is called Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. You know, Tom's very funny. He's always very complimentary. The first appearance on the show, he always comes after me. He says, I get more feedback from that than when I did Carson. But anyway, it was nice to talk to Tom. Hang out for a minute, folks. For all you Full Marin listeners, I answered a lot of your questions for a new Ask Mark Anything bonus episode that went up this week. Do you have any phobias? It doesn't need to be clinically recognized. Just anything that particularly scares you or creeps you out. I don't don't like being scared by things in the moment, but there's very few things that I'm scared of in a way that is sort of ongoing. I don't like being startled uh, by, you know, wild animals. Insects, humans, uh, but that that's not really a phobia. I would say that my longest and sort of pronounced phobia is of water I cannot see the bottom of. Large bodies of water or even smaller bodies of water that are too deep for me to assess. I think I have a, a, a fear of that. I don't love flying. I'm afraid of it, but I've had to, to accept and live with that one. Uh, I, don't lo- I lo- love the idea of plummeting out of the air. I have a terrible fear of being t-boned in my car. There was an accident that uh, happened in Albuquerque where a drunk driver was barreling down a side street so fast, ran a stop sign, and struck, broadsided another car, but drove right through it. It it hit it and soared over it and decapitated four people in it. I I have a very being t-boned in a car is is really my day-to-day most active fear because I'm not. I'm not out on the ocean all the time. <laughs> I, I don't like flying over water either. That's a double whammy. I'm so afraid the combination of flying and flying over large bodies of water is just horrifying to me. The idea of crashing into the water and just being strapped into a seat at the, you know, at the bottom of the ocean is, is probably metaphorically the loneliest image I can possibly even think of even though I'll be dead. But that one really gets me. I got to do a lot of fucking be in the moment kind of stuff. A lot of self-talk flying over those large bodies of water. You can get that episode along with all the bonus material we've been doing for the past year by signing up for the full Marin. Just click on the link in the episode description or go to WTFPod.com and click on WTF Plus. Uh, And now I'm, I'm trying to, I'm working on this. Fairly unknown Velvet Underground song. Don't tell anybody that that's, that's what I'm playing because it could be anything. Could be anything. <laughs> Lives monkey Lafonda cat angels everywhere.